Welcome to the 174th episode of the 4th and 24 podcast with Patrick Winograd. I'm your host, Patrick Winograd. In this edition, our topics are a brief overview of my weekend predictions and our weekly look at college football, the NFL, and this week, MLB playoff action. So let's jump right in with a look back in my weekend predictions, which are posted every Thursday on our website, 4th24.com. We will start in the MLB, where I went 1-3 in, in series predictions or Game 1 predictions, because I had originally said that it was Game 1 predictions, and then I realized that all of the series were best of three, so I should just make it a series prediction anyway. Uh, I edited the post after, but probably didn't get that message out enough. Um, but doesn't really matter, because every team who won Game 1 ended up winning the series anyway. Uh, so the Mariners swept the Blue Jays, beating them in two games. The Guardians swept the Rays, which was the only one I predicted correctly. Um, the Phillies swept the Cardinals, which was incorrect by me, because uh, I picked the Cardinals. And the Padres took two of three from the Mets. Uh, I will talk more in depth about each of those series when we go into our Division Series playoff uh, preview, because, uh, yeah, I think it's more useful to talk about them in the context of next series than this one, obviously, with the series actually starting as we speak, pretty much. Um, in college football, I went 3-1. and one. Number 8, Tennessee, beat number 25, LSU, 40-13. That was a very impressive performance by Tennessee on the road. Uh, number 18, UCLA, beat number 11, Utah, 42-32. That was my only loss, although I was really flipping back and forth. Had no idea, really, who was going to win that game. Didn't know if that same Utah team that showed up on the road against Florida was going to show up again, and that's really kind of what it felt like. A little bit sloppy, some turnovers, and the defense not really holding its weight. Um, and then number 23, Mississippi State beat Arkansas 40-17, to which I got correct. And number 17, TCU beat number 19, Kansas 38-31. Uh, Kansas is going to stay about ranked where they were heading in this game. I think this game was pretty much just telling you that TCU is firmly better, but Kansas still has the potential to be a top 20 team. They deserve to be a top 20 team. Uh, they didn't play the second half with their starting quarterback, so that's also part of the reason why they lost. Uh, but I won't make excuses. TCU won that game for sure. I'm happy that they won. I predicted that they'd win. Pretty much went exactly how I thought it would. I think the spread was even seven on the dot, so might have even had a push in Vegas there. Uh, but moving on to the NFL, I went two and two in my predictions in the NFL. The Giants woke up at uh, 6.30 in the morning West Coast time and beat the Packers in London 27-22. That one I lost. The Cowboys used their special teams uh, to beat the Rams 22-10, and also their defense as well, I should mention. Um, and then the Eagles beat the Cardinals 20-17. I won that. And the Ravens beat the Bengals 19-17. I won that prediction as well. Uh, so two and two in the NFL, three and one in NCAA, one and three in the MLB, and that ends up as an even 500 overall, a six and six record this weekend, bringing me to a combined 490 and 341 overall, uh, a 59% winning percentage, and uh, that will be it for the weekend predictions this week. So my predictions for next weekend will be posted on our website on Thursday. Uh, those will probably be single game, if any, predictions in the MLB because of the uh, way that the series are shaking out, and we'll see what I do there. Some of the series might even be over by then, so we'll see what happens. Maybe there won't be MLB predictions. I don't actually know for now, uh, but the rest of the leagues, the NCAA and uh, the NFL, will be uh, will have predictions. I will have football predictions this weekend, that is for sure. Uh, speaking of football, let's move on to a quick look back at Week 6 action in NCAA football. We will start with the best games of Week 6, uh, by far, I think the best one, uh, for me at least, Alabama 
Texas A&M, a lot of storylines going into this game. You have A&M's lack of offense uh, the whole season. You have all the crap talking going back and forth that they've been doing for, what, a few years now uh, between Jimbo and Nick Saban on and off. And then uh, Alabama, obviously, without Bryce Young. So even a backup quarterback for the number one team in the country to throw in a little extra dimension to this game. Uh, pretty much all the scoring was done in the second quarter. It was... 0-0 zero zero into the second, and then 17-14 at the half, and obviously ended 24-20 in Alabama's favor. A&M had the chance to win the game. Uh, they had one play from the two-yard line with three seconds left, but they threw the ball short of the end zone, and uh, it was incomplete anyway. So Alabama did narrowly escape with that win. Not the greatest look for Alabama, but I, I'm not uh, I'm not ready to jump off the ship right now because Georgia did the same thing against Missouri, who's way worse than A&M. At least Alabama had a backup quarterback uh, against a really good defense. A&M, or sorry, Georgia didn't really have any excuses for playing Missouri that close, but they bounced back this week and beat Auburn by a, a very large amount. So I, th I think it was 32. So they were, they obviously are fine as well. So, you know, the top three remains unchanged in terms of who uh, that being Alabama, Ohio State, and Georgia. But I think the order has changed. We obviously slid up Ohio State to number one this week uh, just because they really haven't struggled against any team like either Alabama or Georgia has so far this season. And at the same time, they actually have been the least healthy of them all up until maybe now that Alabama's been missing Bryce Young. But Ohio State has played much of the season without Jackson Smith and Jigba, some games without Julian Fleming, some games without Mayan Williams, some games without Travion Henderson. Uh, really, the only constants have been C.J. Stroud and uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. on the offense, which has been more than enough to carry the Buckeyes to their undefeated record so far. But let's move on from that talk uh, to number 14, NC State, who beat Florida State 19-17. Florida State was within field goal range with 39 seconds left through an interception. That was a very bad ending to the game for Florida State. They still look like a quality team, though, a borderline top 25 team. Uh, if this team somehow didn't make a bowl game, I would be shocked. Uh, they also should probably end the season ranked because they've played uh, NC State already, and obviously that probably going to be their toughest game, maybe unless they play Clemson later in the year. So it really should be a good season uh, for Florida State, and they also already played Wake Forest. So they've played two of the top three teams in the ACC already, so it should get a little bit easier for them down the stretch. Uh, moving on from that, you had number 17, TCU, who beat number 19, Kansas, 38-31 at home. I talked about this in weekend predictions. Uh, TCU did what they were supposed to do, and Kansas looked about as good as you expected them to. Uh, but obviously, Kansas without Jalen Daniels in that second half, that was a big blow to them not having their starting quarterback. But there's a lot of action in the third quarter in this game, regardless, no matter what the quarterback situation was. And it was a fun game to watch, and I loved watching this game of a matchup between two, you know, unconventional top 25 teams in the Big 12. But now we will move on to the biggest upsets of the week. Uh, starting with 2-4 and four Arizona State, fresh off firing Herm Edwards, were able to pull off the upset and beat Washington, number 21 in the country, by 7 at home, 45-38. to 38. Uh, Moving on from that, you had South Carolina go on the road. Obviously, Kentucky without their quarterback, uh, Will Levis, but at the same time, a very impressive road win. Uh, by South Carolina, beating Kentucky 24-14 on the road. And finally, Notre Dame beat number 16 BYU 28-20. Obviously, going into the season, this wouldn't be an upset at all, but after what happened in the first few weeks with Notre Dame, it does look like an upset a little bit. Um, so 3-0 since the 0-2 start. 
Uh, looking better for Notre Dame. Obviously got that win over North Carolina as well. So they're actually looking good. They've beaten some quality teams. Probably the hardest part of their schedule, um, you could argue the hardest two-game stretch was BYU and North Carolina, and they went 2-0 in that stretch. So a, a good result for Notre Dame, and they are just going to have to keep, uh, I, I don't want to say rebuilding, but keep going from here in the positive direction and uh, stay on track. Uh, but then for the most impressive teams, I touched on it a little bit. Tennessee beating LSU 40-13. to I mean, this was just a showcase of what Tennessee could do all of this without Cedric Tillman, their number one wide receiver, still able to put up 40 points on a top 25 SEC team on the road. Just a very, very impressive performance uh, by Tennessee, and they will carry that momentum into a showdown with Alabama this weekend. And uh, if there's no Bryce Young, Tennessee will win this game. That is my prediction. Uh, if Bryce Young plays, that'll be a different story. Uh, but I don't really have a prediction on if he plays yet. I really have to look into it a little bit more. Uh, but I, I'm I'm fully prepared for Tennessee to actually be able to pull off the upset of the juggernaut that is Alabama that seems to never lose games uh, until at least the SEC championship game. Uh, and speaking of a program that's actually not a juggernaut, we have number 18 UCLA who are undefeated and bowl eligible already at 6-0. and They beat number 11 Utah 42-32. I was just generally impressed with this performance. Uh, obviously, I had picked Utah, so I wasn't necessarily believing that UCLA would be the team to uh, pull off the upset over the Utes, but here we are. They were able to get the win, and uh, they did a good job. Um, UCLA just played a good game. Defense, you know, obviously giving up 32 points is not ideal, but at the same time, they played a very strong offensive team, uh, and a win is a win, as they will say. So I'm going to go ahead and say that UCLA definitely impressed me this week. Did not expect them to come out with the win, and they did. Uh, and then finally, for the best road wins, let's move on. Number four, Michigan beat Indiana 31-10. to uh, Second half dominance by the Wolverines. Their defense has eight more sacks through week six than the defense did last year with David Ajabo and Aiden Hutchinson. And obviously, that's a surprise because everybody thought that the pass rush would be a little bit weakened this year. But instead, it's just picked off where it left off last year, and uh, Michigan has been able to reload and just keep churning out the talent on the defensive line. It's been a constant for a while now, but especially this year where you thought with the number two overall pick leaving, you would lose a lot of production. But Mike Morris and Ayabioki have been great this season, along with some others as well. Um, and then also, I'll throw in number five Clemson, who beat Boston College 31-3. to this really is a carbon copy of the Michigan-Indiana game in the ACC, and yet, for some reason, AP voters thought that this win by Clemson was enough to move them ahead of Michigan, which is, um, I guess I'll just say perplexing. I mean, I just don't, it, I really feel like there's not that big of a difference between a 31-3 win over Indiana, or over over Boston College, um, and a 31-10 win over Indiana. If anything, Indiana's probably better than Boston College. Um, but it's just kind of strange that they decided to change the rankings this week. If you wanted to change them earlier, so be it. But I don't know what evidence they have this week to really change those. But in the end, the only rankings that matter are the final college football playoff rankings. And uh, really before that, just the college football rankings when they actually start to come out in the first place, because we don't know what they have in mind. They might have Clemson ahead of Michigan. They might have had them there the whole season. They might have Clemson ahead of Georgia. Who knows? But that will be it for our discussion of college football this week. Now I will move on to a look at the MLB with playoff action getting underway.
I will start with the wild card round, obviously. Uh, starting in the AL, the Mariners swept the Blue Jays. The Mariners won game one, four to nothing. Three of their runs coming in the first inning off of Alec Manoa. Uh, obviously, the Blue Jays not able to generate any offense in the whole game, and that was really the cause of their downfall. Uh, but look, there was still a, there was still a game here. I mean, the Mariners only scored four. The, this, the fourth run, I think, was a sack fly in the fifth or sixth inning that knocked in an extra insurance run for the Mariners. But really, a, a home run by Cal Raleigh, um, a two-run home run by Cal Raleigh, was how the game got started, and that was really all the Mariners needed in the end. I mean, you expected the Blue Jays to maybe fight back on offense, and they had their opportunities, but Luis Castillo, despite giving up seven or eight hits, didn't give up a run, and that's all that matters. I think he only gave up singles in the whole game, and that's just not going to get it done. The Blue Jays are a team that need to slug to win games. They're not going to play small ball at all. I mean, we, we saw it later in the Padres-Mets series as well, but the Mets, you know, they are able to still to steal some bases to play some small ball. Even the Padres did a little bit, kind of surprisingly, honestly. Uh, but at the same time, the Blue Jays need to hit doubles, get extra base hits, hit home runs to actually generate their run support. Um, and in Game 2, they were actually able to do that. But despite having an 8-1 to lead in this game, the Mariners were able to come back the third comeback by seven runs, or the third team ever to come back by seven runs uh, or more in a postseason game ever, uh, the Mariners became with this 10 to 9 comeback win over the Blue Jays. They were up 8 to 1, as I said, the Blue Jays were. Teoscar Hernandez hit two home runs. Uh, Danny Jansen had a few RBIs. Uh, but then the Mariners really swung this game in their favor when it was 9 to 6, or sorry, it was actually 9 to 5 to start an inning. Uh, and they went double, single, single off of Anthony Bass. He got taken out of the game after facing the mi the the minimum. Jordan Romano came in. He only gave up, he gave up a walk. And then he gave up a bloop single that just fell between Bo Bichette and George Springer and actually injured George Springer and knocked him out of the game. So two bad results for one play for the Blue Jays there. And that was uh, unfortunate for them. But then the Mariners, obviously, they tied it on that bloop single because it was that bases loaded in two outs. That was a 9-6 to six game at that time after the double, the single, and the single to start the inning. Um, Romano had gotten a few outs but wasn't able to get that one. Got some weak contact but, again, fell in, and that's that's just baseball sometimes. It just has to be like that. And then Adam Frazier was able to hit a double uh, to knock in, I believe, Cal Raleigh uh, to win the game at 10-9, his double in the top of the ninth, sending the Mariners over uh, the Blue Jays, and they are now uh, 2-0 in the postseason in the last 21 years, which is obviously the best record of any team. Uh, obviously, also the least games played by any team, uh, judging that they just ended their playoff drought this year with this appearance. But let's move on to the other series. This series had no offense whatsoever. Uh, game 1, the Guardians win 2-1. to one. Uh, The Rays got their only run off of a Jose Siri uh, home run. And the Guardians got their only runs off of a Jose Ramirez two-run home run. Uh, so this was, I mean, this is exactly what you expected from the series, though. The two teams who don't really spend money in free agency uh, get a lot of production through trades of good players that are maybe aging a little bit. Uh, even the Francisco Lindor trade brought Andres Jimenez to Cleveland. Uh, Jose Ramirez obviously did sign a big extension with Cleveland, but was a homegrown player initially. Um, and look... This was a well-pitched series all around. I mean, Shane Bieber, uh, Shane McClanahan had a great duel in Game 1, both giving up one home run as the only blemish, uh, obviously that being a Guardians win. And then Tristan McKenzie 
Uh, and Tyler Glasnow off the IL from only making three starts this year uh, had a great duel themselves. This game didn't have a score in game two I'm now talking about until 15 innings. It took until the bottom of the 15th for the Guardians to have Oscar Gonzalez hit a walk-off solo home run. Those were the only runs scored in the entire game. I, I said those were the only runs. That was the only run scored in the entire game. 0-0 uh, the whole way until the 15th inning. Uh, it was really something to watch. I mean, uh, it, that game was... It was a masterclass of pitching. It was exactly what you might expect in a Guardians and Rays series. Uh, but still, I don't know about 0-0 to 15 innings. That That's just almost impossible to reach. Then let's move on to the NL wildcard, and then we'll get into our predictions for the series uh, upcoming. But in the NL wildcard, the Phillies swept the Cardinals. The Phillies won game one, six to three. Uh, the Cardinals were up two to nothing going into the ninth inning, gave up six runs, some errors, some hits, some mismanagement by Ollie Marmol, leaving Ryan Helsley in the game. I will talk about Ollie Marmol after the end of the series, uh, but let, let's get through game one first. Uh, the Phillies scored those six unanswered runs, and then the Cardinals answered with one. Never say die, but they unfortunately uh, lost. They ended up losing 6-3 to three with the tying run uh, up at the plate. Uh, Goldschmidt and Arenado not productive in this game. They wouldn't be in Game 2. The Bats as a whole wouldn't be productive in Game 2, uh, as the Phillies won 2 to nothing uh, with a strong start from Aaron Nola in this game. Uh, Nola and Wheeler did exactly what the Phillies needed them to do with a bullpen that's, let's say, shaky at best. Um, I don't know how they're going to do against the Braves. I actually have a prediction as to how that we'll get to in a second. Um, but I, look, for now, the Phillies should be very happy. This is a very, very successful season for them. Winning a series after firing your manager uh, midway through the season, just being able to get to the playoffs is already an accomplishment, and then being able to actually win a series on top of that uh, just shows even more that the fact that the Phillies' talent was there all year and uh, they just needed the right guy to motivate them and get them into the right situations and uh, play their cards right. And that's exactly what happened in the series against the cards, no pun intended. Uh, meanwhile, on the other end, Ollie Marmol, this was a very questionably managed series. I mean, th there were many decisions here that were uh, questionable at best, especially with the management of Ryan Helsley and his innings and pitching him multiple innings and then having him obviously not available for game two, whether he was injured or not. Uh, it was just kind of not the best. I mean, I, I don't know what he could have done differently other than maybe not taking Quintana out of game one at 75 pitches, maybe letting him get to 90. Um, and then if he had done that, then when he had gotten to 90 pitches or so, then Jordan Hicks and Giovanni Gallegos wouldn't have had to go multiple innings and cover more than three innings. I think it was three and two thirds innings that they had to cover with uh, those two and Helsley. Um, and eventually Andre Pallante, but instead they would have only had to cover three if they had let Quintana finish that inning. So I, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of ways you can go with this, but that generally just felt like a, a not very well managed series, honestly. I don't want to say it was mismanaged, but I really feel like there could have been some better decisions made that would have led the Cardinals maybe even to winning this series. Uh, at the very least, winning at least a game. I mean, game one was a disaster, honestly. Um, and I still think that even after Helsley had walked in a run and hit a batter at that point, that was the point where you bring the trainer out, say he's injured, whether it's true or not, and just, just get somebody up in the bullpen. They needed a backup plan a lot earlier than they started to hatch one. And by the time 
Palante came into the game, it was too late and they made too many mistakes afterwards. Um, so it's just unfortunate for the Cardinals. I mean, not a no, no hard hit balls at all for the Phillies. 88 miles per hour was the highest exit velocity in that inning to score six runs and take the lead for the Phils. Uh, but they move on to take the, on their divisional rivals, the Braves in the a in the NLDS. And let's talk about another guy, another team who will be taking on their NLDS, their uh, rivals in the NLDS. That being the Padres, who took two of three from the Mets in game one. The Padres just took out Max Scherzer. I mean, the reason why I thought the Mets would win the series is DeGrom and Scherzer. And I honestly thought that if they had not won the first two games, they were probably going to lose game three. Uh, That was my honest read on the series going into it. But I felt DeGrom and Scherzer were going to be clutch enough and they were going to be able to win that game. Those two games, sorry, for the Mets. Uh, But the Padres came out in game one hit four home runs off of Max Scherzer uh, and won that game 7-1. to one. Just kind of felt like it deflated the Mets. It just took the air out of the building and everything. Um, and then in game two, they bounced back. They beat them. The Mets won 7-3. Uh, with DeGrom on the mound, they got him some run support, contrary to what they always do in the regular season. Um, but that was it for the Mets' offense. They scored the one run in game one and the seven in game two and went completely quiet in game three against Joe Musgrove. Uh, They had to get his ears checked because they thought that he had substances there. And, you know, you can read Andrew McCutcheon's uh, explanation of it on Twitter. That's the account I will believe the most. Um, But look, it doesn't matter. None of the controversies matter. The Padres won six to nothing over the Mets in game three, and that propelled them into the NLDS against the Dodgers, and we will see what happens in that series uh, later. But for now, let's move on to our predictions for those series. Uh, I will start in the ALDS. Uh, I have the Yankees beating the Guardians in four games. I just believe that uh, the Guardians will sneak one by. This could definitely be a five-game series. I could see Cleveland winning the series. It'll be a close four-game series, but the way Cleveland's offense came out in that postseason in the first series, it's just not... It's not enough for me to believe that they're going to take this all the way to five. Um, however, Randy has the Guardians in five. Uh, that is an interesting prediction, although he said maybe some of that was just trying to be contrarian, go against the mold a little bit. Uh, but at the same time, I again, I could see it happening. I don't personally think it's going to, but I could see the Guardians pitching just kind of coming out and just knocking out the Yankees early and kind of catching them off guard, maybe winning, maybe stealing one of the games in New York and then going back home and winning the two game, the two games there and just pretty much ending the series right there or winning at least one of those games at home. Um, but I could see it happening. I don't know if it will, but I could see it. Uh, then in the Astros and the Mariners, I have the Astros beating the Mariners in a five-game, very, very entertaining series. I have this being the second most entertaining series uh, of the playoffs. And uh, my dad agrees with me having the Astros in four games. Uh, In the NLDS, I have the Braves beating the Phillies in four games. I think this was an obvious prediction, although my dad has picked the Phillies in four games. Uh, I don't know what the reasoning is. Really don't like that pick. Uh, But uh, he can defend himself next week when when the series are already over and everything is said and done. And maybe he'll be right. You know what? Maybe I end up... 2-2 2-2 and two in predictions, and he goes 4-0, and oh and good for him. Uh, however, we do agree on one series. We both have the Dodgers beating the Padres in five games. Uh, if you asked me two weeks ago, I would have said if the Dodgers played the Padres in a playoff series right now, the Dodgers would sweep them no matter how many games uh, there were. But Trent Grisham just awakening randomly 
Um, and Josh Hader starting to round into form and then being the postseason form that he has, all of a sudden that's really kind of changed the Padres. I mean, their main problem this year was they had the big guys at the top of the order, but as soon as you got to the bottom of the order, you could just mow through them. Now all of a sudden, you got Austin Nola taking good at bats. You got Grisham arguably being the best offensive player uh, on their team so far in the postseason. And that's really changed things because it's normally the opposite where one, two, three, four, and five are doing everything and six, seven, eight, nine just don't do anything. And it's really been the opposite for the Padres. So their depth has actually starting has actually started to shine through. But I still believe that a team that has a, a guy as good as Cody Bellinger hitting eighth or ninth in the lineup is still going to prevail long term over Trent Grisham having a hot streak. Um, I believe both of those guys who both were hitting around 200 the whole season while still playing gold glove defense, mind you, and that's why they're both valuable, so valuable to their teams with their speed and with their defense. Um, but I do believe that Bellinger will round in his own form. He had a last a good last week of the season, and I think that he'll kind of play Trent Grisham the same way that Trent Grisham played in the, the Mets series, kind of be that spoiler, the unexpected hero for the Dodgers as long as the rest of the guys in the lineup do their job. I think the Dodgers have the series on lock, but I really do think this will be a close series. I have this being the most entertaining series of them all. Um, let's move on from the MLB now to the NFL, starting with the best games of week five. Uh, I will start with the Chargers who beat the Browns 30 to 28. They got lucky that the Browns were not able to make their last second field goal uh, to win the game. Uh, they Brandon Staley made another pretty bad decision going for it on fourth and two. I believe on their own 45 with two minutes left and gave the Browns the ball back in a position to score uh, that game winning field goal just with basically one first down, not even with first down. Honestly, they didn't need to get it, uh, but the Browns did miss that field goal. They end up losing that game. Then you had the Saints who beat the Seahawks 39 to 32. They were in desperate need of a bounce back game. Uh, their defense still has looked way worse than it was supposed to all season long, but the offense picked up this week and they were able to power them to a win over Seattle. This game went back and forth for a while. A lot of big plays, a lot of touchdowns scored, a lot of points scored in general, uh, and the Seahawks' defense continues to look horrible. Uh, then you had the Buccaneers beat the Falcons 21-15. to uh, Look, we all know about the call. The Falcons definitely should have had an opportunity to win this game, and it got taken away from them by Jerome Boger and the NFL's referee crew that was at that game. Uh, that was the worst roughing the passer call I think I've ever seen in my entire life. I don't know how you call roughing the passer on a sack. Uh, it's just not accurate at all. I, I don't really have words to describe it. It was just a horrible call. Um, and if you were a fantasy player with Falcons players, like maybe you had Drake London like me, you were also mad because the Falcons had scored 15 in the fourth quarter and they would have had the chance to get the ball back and with that sack, the, the Buccaneers would have been out of field goal range. They couldn't have put the game away. They were ha they would have to punt on fourth down, and the Falcons would have gotten the ball back down six with, I think, three minutes left in the timeout, and they would have been able to possibly, I don't know if they would have or not, but possibly drive down the field and try to win the game. Um, and then that just got taken away from them from that call. It's just unfortunate and unfortunate way to end the game. Uh, but the Buccaneers squeak by and get to three and two uh, after week five. Then you have the Eagles, who they have, they they squeaked by in this game. Matt Prater missed a game-winning field, or a game-tying field goal, I should say. But the Eagles won 20-17 to push the Cardinals to 2-3 and three on the season, much like the rest of the NFC West, because the Rams are also 2-3. and three. Uh, But we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but look, the Eagles went on the road. They won a game against a, a good team. I mean, I don't think the Cardinals are uh, 
exactly as good as they were last year, and I think the Eagles are established as a better team than them, but at the same time, hard to win on the road uh, in any sport, but definitely in the NFL, and uh, the Eagles just able to kind of impose their will in the first half. They utilized that 14-10 lead, tacked on two extra field goals, and that was just enough for their defense to hold up the rest of the game uh, and win this game against the Cardinals on the road. Then you had the Ravens who beat the Bengals 19-17 on Sunday night football via a Justin Tucker game-winning field goal. How else would a Ravens game end, right? I mean, that, that's how it has to end. It always has to end with a Justin Tucker field goal. That is the way that the Ravens uh, were able to win that game, and uh, that was a good result for them because they kind of needed to win a close game. They had choked two leads previously this season, and they were up 10 to nothing in this game before the Bengals stormed back and came back to tie it at 10 before the half even happened uh, or even ended. But then the Ravens were able to get three more field goals in the second half. They kind of settled for the field goals, I'll be honest. Um, and the Bengals got a little overzealous. They went for they went for it uh, to try to take the lead at some point on fourth and goal on the two and were not able to get it. The Ravens were able to uh, go up by six after that, and the Bengals came back, scored a touchdown to take the lead, but left just too much time on the clock for Lamar Jackson with three timeouts. They were able to drive down the field uh, and get the win with the Justin Tucker field goal. But now let's move on to the most impressive teams of the week. Starting with the Cowboys, I have this because their defense was magnificent in this game beyond one, I mean, besides that one play that Cooper Cup had, the one big play, they gave up one field goal drive. Obviously, the Rams missed a field goal as well. Uh, but the Rams really just, the, the protection for Matt Stafford has to be better. There, or Matthew Stafford has to be better. There, there's no way that the Rams are going to be in the Super Bowl again, maybe even in the playoffs again, if they can't figure out a way to protect him better. I mean, it, it's just been an issue all year long. Uh, every team has been able to tee off and blitz him. He needs more time. He's not He's not Jalen Hurts. He's not going to escape out of the pocket and make plays with his legs. Uh, he, he can run a little bit, but he, he's not agile enough to be protected so poorly and still actually be expected to succeed. Uh, but meanwhile, maybe it was just a Cowboy-specific problem. Maybe the Rams' offensive line did play better this week than they did against the Niners. It's hard to tell because both of these teams have really great pass rushes. Um, so, you know, that, that was the thing that I was most impressed with uh, with the Cowboys, though, is that defensive line generating that pressure. They got the third down uh, strip sack of Matthew Stafford that got them their first touchdown of the game. Cooper Rush barely had to do anything in this game uh, for the Cowboys to win 22 to 10. Seven points coming from the defense. Then they blocked a field goal, or sorry, blocked a punt by the Rams on the next drive in the first quarter uh, and kicked the field goal to take a nine to nothing lead after missing the extra point on the first touchdown. So they were up nine to nothing, pretty much spotted all by their defense. And then they got one big play by Tony Pollard breaking a few tackles um, to get a long run of his own. And that was all the offense they needed for the whole game. Uh, they got two more field goals, but they didn't end up needing them. Uh, those 16 alone would have done it. Uh, but then, speaking of uh, the offense in the second half, and a good defense, actually, a really good defensive performance, the Giants are now 4-1 and one after beating the Packers. They might be for real. Look at the NFC East all of a sudden. Now the NFC West looks like the bad division, and the NFC East looks like the good division after this week. Uh, but the Giants at 4-1 and one beat the Packers 27-22 in London. They outscored the Packers 17 to two in the second half and the only two points that the Packers got were the Giants intentionally taking a safety uh at the end of the uh game pretty much but the Giants 
Uh, they were able to storm back. Saquon Barkley had a great game. Overall, the team just had a great game. Daniel Jones playing with a bum ankle was still very, very productive. They utilized some wildcat in the read option as opposed to having Daniel Jones run it with that ankle injury. Um, and the defense held up against Aaron Rodgers for the whole second half without giving up anything. And that was the big that, that was the big thing that won them the game. Uh, the Packers also had to go for it on fourth down and they were inside of the red zone to try to score to tie it at 27 when they were down 27 to 20. They weren't able to. The Giants made the stand there and then obviously they were able to kind of run out the clock before taking that safety and then the Packers were not able to get off their Hail Mary. Um, but let's move on to the final game. The most impressive team for me on defense, the Patriots. Uh, and really, I got to give all credit to Bill Belichick in this game. Uh, obviously, being a Rams fan, I have seen Jared Goff play the Patriots a few times and it has never gone well, and you have known that it wasn't going to go well before the game even started. And this time, the Lions come in with the highest scoring offense in the league. Yes, you heard that right, the Lions. Uh, also the worst defense in the league, which is why they're 1-3 going into the week. But the highest scoring offense in the league just scored zero points against the Patriots. I mean, Bill Belichick did a masterful job scheming up this game and confusing Jared Goff, holding him in check, holding the whole offense in check. Uh, as the Patriots rolled on to a 29 to nothing win. Uh, I know that Lions fans are kind of feeling that Dan Campbell has kind of grown and then left on them in terms of uh, his impressions. And, uh, well, he has not been fired yet, but Matt Rule has been after the 1-4 start to the year. I'm not going to mention their game against the 49ers, but I wanted to throw that in there because that was breaking news yesterday morning, so uh, pretty important to mention when a coach gets fired, but one and four start and uh, Matt Rule is out. Uh, hey, Nebraska, pick up the phone, please. That would be a good hire for you. Uh, but for the rest of the NFL, I got nothing else. So that wraps up this edition of the 4th and 24 podcast. Please be sure to check out our next podcast, which will be on Tuesday, October 18th, where we will check out uh, my weekend predictions again, have our weekly look at the MLB, this time the divisional series playoff action, and maybe even the start of the championship series. Uh, and look back at the highlights from week seven of college football action and also discuss week six of the NFL. In the meantime, be sure to check out my additional content, including my MLB power rankings with only teams in the playoffs that will be updated tomorrow and my annual spreadsheet predicting every college football game for the 2022 regular season, as long as well as, sorry, our weekly college football rankings that were posted yesterday and my picks for next weekend's games, which will be posted on Thursday, as always on our website, 4thand24.com. That's the number 4, T-H-A-N-D, the number 24.com. Thank you for listening.